Well, good morning. My name is Jason. Happy Palm Sunday to all of you guys. And we started this series uh, five weeks ago, and actually I had a chance uh, to preach that day. And we started by asking ourselves these questions to help us understand, to help us kind of wrap our arms around, like, what is the deal with this series? Why is this important for us to really dig in to this series? And the questions were, do you ever struggle with feelings of mediocrity? Do you ever feel like your faith is just kind of ho-hum? And do you ever feel like there's got to be more to a relationship with God than you're experiencing? And the umbrella that all of these questions fell under is the concept uh, of the kingdom of God. And, And this concept, the kingdom of God, is something that we said Jesus spoke more about than almost any other subject. And so I hope that as you've joined us over the past five weeks, that you've begun to start to grasp the heart of Jesus' message, the real meat of the gospel, that God's kingdom is not just some future far away thing, but it is a present thing. It is a here and now kind of thing. And Jesus invites us to engage in it, to seek it, so that we can be transformed by it both for ourselves and for the sake of others. Turns out we were never meant to live this life under our own power, but that the coming of the kingdom means that we can be empowered by the Holy Spirit, who is our helper and our advocate. And throughout this series, we have centered our conversations around something that Jesus said about the kingdom in Matthew 6, 33. It's been our theme verse for the series. He said, seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously and he will give you everything you need. Jesus said the way that you can live, the way that you can experience kingdom power in your life is to seek the kingdom. But here is the problem with my seeking and with your seeking is that sometimes we have mixed motives. I mean, if we're honest, all throughout our lives, we enter into situations with mixed motives, don't we? For instance, uh, maybe you can relate to one of my mixed motive situations on many occasions, uh, last night being one of them. One of my children is awake for some reason in the middle of the night. Maybe they have a cough, maybe they're just not feeling right, maybe they had too much ice cream before dinner, whatever it was. And I find myself just praying like, God, whatever is going on with them, would you help them feel better? Now, granted, I do legitimately want them to feel better. I don't want them to be in discomfort. But if I'm honest, one of my motives, maybe even my primary motive, is that I just want to be sleeping right now. Like, it's the middle of the night, children. It's it's a sleep time. It's not an awake time, right? Like, how can we coach our kids and help them understand this? Some of you, uh, maybe in the room, have teenagers, or maybe you have kids in college, and you have a motive, you're motivated, you want to help your kids succeed, you want your kids to become productive members of society. But another one of your motivations, another reason why you want them to succeed is that you don't want them living in your basement when they're 35 years old, right? And so, in so many situations in our lives, we have mixed motives. And mixed motives can get us into trouble, can't they? I mean, look at the news recently, right? Like parents paying people to change their kids' grades on college entrance exams or bribing colleges to accept their kids. Mixed motives can lead to unwise actions. And sometimes our mixed motives are blatant. Sometimes we're very well aware of what we're doing as we're entering into something with mixed motives. And other times we don't even realize that we have them. And then we make a poor decision and we kind of sit back and look at it and wonder like, how did that happen? Like, how did I end up getting to the place 
where that's the decision that I made. You know, this is true of our spiritual seeking as well, that we all start with mixed motives as it relates to our spiritual seeking. Maybe we felt unwanted, and so we were motivated to seek God because we wanted to feel loved. Maybe we felt like we were lost, and so we were motivated to seek God because we wanted to just find a purpose for our lives. Maybe we were sick, and we were motivated by wanting to be healed. Maybe we were in turmoil. We were motivated by wanting to just feel some peace in our lives. Maybe we felt shame, and we were motivated to seek God because we wanted to be released from that shame. None of those things are bad reasons for seeking the kingdom of God. In fact, all of those things that we could seek are good things that Jesus does offer us. All of those things are benefits of the kingdom. But here's the rub. The kingdom also has a king. And while he is a good king, while he is a king who cares deeply about his people, he cares way too much about us to just give us good things without also wanting to help us be empowered by him to live a good life. The king of the kingdom wants to have loving rule in your life because even more than him wanting you to be blessed, he wants you to be wise. Even more than wanting you to be blessed, he wants you to be purposeful. He wants your life to be centered on and surrendered to him. Have you ever experienced this mixed motives thing in your relationship with God? Like, have you ever found yourself praying, asking God to fix your problems, but not really wanting what God wants for your life as much as you want what you want for your life? As we bring this series to a conclusion today, I want us to ask ourselves a question. And this is your first blank today. It's that when it comes to the kingdom, what am I really seeking? When it comes to the kingdom, what am I really seeking? Am I seeking God? Am I seeking a relationship with God? Or am I just seeking the benefits of God? We're going to flesh that out a little bit more as we go today. You know, like I said, we all have mixed motives. And in fact, mixed motives have been part of the human story for an awfully long time. And this morning, we're going to take a look at a scene in Matthew 21 that featured a crowd full of people with mixed motives. And it's a scene that takes us from the original Palm Sunday to the original Good Friday. So the original Palm Sunday occurred in Jerusalem 2,000 plus years ago on the week of Passover. And Passover was a time of celebration when the people remembered the day that God made a way for them to be passed over by the death that he brought on the firstborn in every household in Egypt. See, the Pharaoh, the ruler of Egypt at that time, was holding the Israelite people captive, and he was using them as slaves and treating them pretty terribly. And so God came up with this strategy after employing a few other strategies to get Pharaoh to relent. And so God gave the Israelites the instruction to, to take the blood of a sacrificial lamb and to, to spread it above the doorposts of their houses so that that night when the death plague came, that it would pass over the houses of the Israelites and only hit the houses of the Egyptians. And so now every year on this particular day of the Passover celebration on Sunday, a lamb would be chosen to be sacrificed as a reminder that sin has devastating consequences, but that God always makes a way for redemption and forgiveness. 
And so I want you to catch something here to not miss the irony of this, that the day that the sacrificial lamb was chosen for Passover was also the day that Jesus, who would become the sacrificial lamb for all humanity, entered into Jerusalem. Now, on that day, Passover was a big honking deal. Everybody came to town for it. I was trying to think of like a modern-day equivalent, and for me, I was thinking of uh, Times Square on New Year's Eve. Like, people pour out of everywhere, pour into town, and everyone comes to town, and everyone's there to celebrate, but they're also a little bit reflective about the future. And in this case, at Passover... Everyone was thinking about how God might one day fulfill his promise to deliver his people through a Messiah of some sort. In fact, tradition had it that the doors to the temple in Jerusalem would be opened symbolically every year on Sunday before Passover to signify the people saying, we are ready, we are open, we are welcome to the arrival of the Messiah that you have promised us. Another maybe unofficial or undesired Passover tradition is that every year on Passover, some zealots, or in our terms, some uh, extremist or enthusiast or fanatic would come to town and would declare himself to be the Messiah. And he would rile up the crowd in an effort to get enough of them to want to take a run at overthrowing the Roman government. And in response, the Romans knew this was coming every year, so they would send extra troops to town during Passover so that they could dispel any riot, so that they could kind of cut down at its legs any uprising that would be coming against them. And so it's into this tradition, it's into this culture that Jesus comes into town. But as was typical with Jesus, he did things a little bit differently than everybody else did. The beginning of this story is actually a little bit comical. In Matthew 21, in verses 1 through 3, it's before the verses that are in your outline today, Jesus actually tells two of his disciples, hey, here's what I want you to do. I need you to go into a nearby village. I want you to find a random donkey and her colt that is tied up. I want you to untie them, and then I want you to bring them back to me. And Jesus is like, listen, if anyone says anything to you, just tell them that the Lord needs them, okay? And they'll look the other way. Now, I don't know if you can picture, if you try to put yourself in the place of the disciples, like their inner dialogue here, like, Jesus, I'm pretty sure my parents told me not to take stuff that wasn't mine. <laughs> uh, like, remember, like, everything we've learned in the temple, those kind of ten biggies that, you know, God gave to Moses and he sent down to the people, and we've been learning ever since those ten laws. Like, wasn't one of them, do not steal? And besides that, like, why do you need a donkey anyways, Jesus? <laughs> But knowing Jesus like they did, knowing that he could calm storms and walk on water and heal diseases, when Jesus asked you to do something crazy, you just did it. <laughs> and so I pictured the disciples almost like cartoon characters, like tiptoeing into town and like looking around, trying to find these animals, finding them, looking around, is anyone watching us, untying them really quickly, and then kind of like bolting for the hills with them before anybody notices. And Matthew 21, 6 says that they did get those animals, they brought them back to Jesus, and then they placed cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. And so why did Jesus have them do this anyway? What was the significance of them going and finding a donkey for him? Isn't this a little bit weird? Well, he did this because as he rides into town on that donkey, he's fulfilling a prophecy that was given 500 years earlier in Zechariah 9.9. And so Jesus does ride into town on a donkey, but unlike the other enthusiasts, the other zealots of the past, he doesn't announce anything about himself. He just rides into town. 
And instead, as the crowd watches Jesus ride into town, and when I picture this scene, I picture it with like some hype music in the background and people getting all excited. But as he rides into town, the crowd cannot contain themselves. They were waiting for someone to ride in to declare himself as the Messiah, and into this huge expectation rides Jesus. And they're thinking to themselves, hey, this is Jesus. Didn't he just raise a man from the dead not too long before that? And so despite the risk of the Roman troops who were there watching, the crowd does something that would have been seen as an act of defiance against Rome and an act of defiance against the religious leaders of that day. It's something that was only done in their culture for someone who was recognized as royalty, as having great power. And it's described in Matthew 21, 8 to 9. It says, A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches from the trees, palm branches maybe, and spread them on the road. The crowd that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. And the crowd speaking these specific words was actually yet another prophecy that was fulfilled that day, one that was predicted in Psalm 118. Now, you might read those words that the crowd spoke and said, hey, it it seems like the crowd really got it. Like they knew who Jesus was. They knew that, that he was the true Messiah, the true Savior. And while it may sound that way, if you think about it, there's plenty of times that our words can sound a certain way, but that we don't really mean what we say, do we? Like when someone gets a really strange haircut and comes up to you and is like, hey, what do you think? And you're like, hey, it looks great. And then you turn around, you're like, what were they thinking? Or when your wife comes up to you and says, hey, does this dress make me look fat? Actually, no, we're not going to use that example. That is a lose-lose example right there. Fellas know that. How about this, though? Have you ever got caught up at a sporting event and said something to or said something about someone? It could be a player, it could be an official, maybe a parent from the opposing team that you didn't really mean. You know, as terrible as it sounds, we often say things that we don't mean. And apparently that's what was happening here as well. And you might ask, how do we know this? Well, we know this because later in Matthew 23, Jesus actually pronounces judgment on these people for not really meaning the words that they said about him. He essentially said that their words were desolate and empty, that they had mixed motives. According to Jesus, when we read this passage, perhaps we should hear the crowd's words more like this, Hosanna, make our lives better. Blessed is he who will use political policy or military power or money to improve our lives. Hosanna, bring us the healing we want. Blessed is the one who will free us from Roman rule so that we can rule ourselves. I mean, think about it from their perspective. It would have been easy for them to think to themselves like, shoot, if Jesus can raise people from the dead, like they were dead and now they're alive again, then what else could Jesus do for us? What else can he offer us? They had mixed motives. And so do we. (laughs) Just like the Jewish people, we tend to approach God transactionally instead of relationally. We tend to approach God transactionally instead of relationally. See, Jesus knew their hearts. He knew that they didn't really want him. They only wanted what he could offer. If we're honest with ourselves, I think that way too often describes us as well. I mean, if you're honest with yourself, 
How do you view God? And the way that you interact with God, how do you treat him? Do you treat him like a vending machine? Like, God, if I give you a little bit of change, if I do a few good things for you, if I give you a nominal amount of myself, then you ought to give me what I want and when I want it. I mean, you love me, don't you? And so isn't it your job to make sure that I'm happy and provided for? Or maybe you treat God like a genie. And I had to choose the Robin Williams version, not the Will Smith version that is so controversial for whatever reason these days. But do you treat God like a genie who should instantaneously, upon your command, change who or what you are? Like, God, my wish should be your command. Isn't that what you're here for? Or maybe you treat God like some kind of kind but, and friendly but irrelevant grandfather. Like an old guy that has this had his day, but now he's just kind of out to lunch. Like, God, thanks for the nice gift that you gave me. Thanks for salvation. That was nice. But now can you just kind of pat me on the back and, and send me on my way? Because I don't think you really understand how challenging my life can be. I think any advice that you have for me would, would kind of be out of touch. So why don't you just bless me and, and send me on my way? Or maybe finally you treat God like a magician. Like, God, just call me up on stage, and if I say the right thing, if I utter the magic words, if I say the right prayer, if I share the right Facebook post, if I, remember this, pass along the right chain letter, (laughs) then you'll work your magic, and something exciting will happen in my life. See, the truth is that the crowd that day wasn't really any different than us. They didn't necessarily want a relationship with Jesus, They wanted to be the recipients of some transactions with Jesus. They didn't really want him. They wanted his benefits. They didn't really want his leadership. They wanted his blessings. Sure, some of them knew who he was. I mean, in verse 11, as some people who weren't familiar with him asked who he was as he was riding into town, the crowds told him, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. And so they knew that he was a prophet. They Uh, called him the son of David. They knew his lineage. They knew his family tree. They knew about him, but they didn't know him. They had no idea who he really was or why he really came, and they definitely didn't know his heart. See, we've gone through this whole series about the kingdom of God, and we talked about how the kingdom is irresistible and how it's radical and, and how we can welcome the kingdom into our lives and how to prepare for the kingdom. But here's something we can't miss, that we cannot truly seek the kingdom without first seeking the king. We cannot truly seek the kingdom without first seeking the king. Because do you know what happens when we seek the kingdom without seeking the king? I mean, we might experience the blessings of the kingdom, but totally miss out on experiencing the love of the king. We might witness the power of God, but miss out on the intimate presence of God in our lives. We might experience the benefits of the kingdom, but miss out on the feeling of being known, truly known and loved by the king. See, we were designed to live in loving union with God. If you look back at how God intended it, in the garden, Adam and Eve were literally walking and talking with God all day long. But in each of these seek the kingdom without first seeking the king scenarios, we settle for a cheapened version of the kingdom 
And we take all of the power and love away from the king. We settle for transactions with God instead of a relationship with God. You know, thinking about it another way, this is like us acting like slaves, just begging for crumbs from God's lavish table instead of us realizing that we are sons and daughters who get a seat at that table. Why can't we truly seek or experience the kingdom without first seeking the king? It's because it lacks all of the power and all of the connection that living life under the king's authority is meant to give us. It's our relationship with the king that gives meaning to and brings gratitude to the blessings we receive from the king. And that's what the crowd was missing, relationship. And not just relationship, but submission in relationship. They wanted all the benefits of the kingdom, but they weren't willing to submit to the leadership of the king. And sometimes we aren't either, are we? In fact, our human nature is to resist being ruled, isn't it? Our human nature isn't to submit and to surrender to the leadership of someone else. It's not to give up control. <laughs> it's to strain for more and more control. Our human nature isn't to entrust ourselves to someone else. It's to trust in ourselves only. And so we want what the kingdom has to offer, and yet we push off of the leadership of the king. I mean, how many times have you wanted God to help you with your finances, but then you resist him being the leader over that area of your life because you want your money to be your money, <laughs> when really, it's God's money. You wanted God's help, but you didn't want to manage your money God's way, and you didn't want to be generous like he instructed you to be, and so did you really want the king, or did you just want the benefits of the kingdom? I mean, how many times have you prayed to God and, and asked him to change someone else's heart, to change them, but rejected God's invitation to search your own heart as a starting point? Did you really want the king, or did you just want the benefits of the kingdom? Or how often have you asked God to give you peace and to give you joy, but you've rejected God's invitation to just stop and to be still and to be with him? And instead, you just continue choosing a busy life. Did you truly desire the king, or did you just want the benefits of the kingdom? These are hard questions for us that point to our propensity to have mixed motives, but they're questions that we have to grapple with because it goes back again to the question of when it comes to the kingdom of God, what am I really seeking? You know, back to the story, the crowds loved the idea of what Jesus could do for them. They loved the ahas that his teaching brought. They loved reaping the benefits of Jesus' miracles, and they cheered for what they believed Jesus could do. But when circumstances changed, when Jesus was arrested, when this man who had shown himself to be so powerful seemed now to be so powerless— when it seemed like there was nothing more that Jesus could do for them, their mixed motives were exposed. Because when Jesus was displayed in front of the crowd, when Pilate, the prefect or the governor of that time, asked the crowd what should happen to Jesus, here's what happened just a few short days after this incredible welcome that Jesus had received as he rode into town. What shall I do then with Jesus who is called the Messiah? Pilate asked. And they all answered, Crucify him. 
Why? What crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, Crucify him! Crucify him! Crucify him! What happened? I mean, how could this crowd that, that extolled Jesus and cheered him into town now shout, crucify him, seemingly just a few breaths later? How? It's because they didn't really want him. <laughs> they wanted the kingdom without the king. When it was clear that their grand plans for him were not going to come to fruition, when it seemed like he had nothing left to offer them, they were content to just discard him through crucifixion. Like, oh, he must have been a fraud, so let's just crucify him. And, and this was typically the punishment of a hardened criminal. Do you ever put yourself in the shoes of the crowd? <laughs> I mean, it's easy for us to sit back here 2,000 plus years later to look at the crowd and be like, what in the world was their deal? Like, why in the heck were they so fickle? But the truth is, we are the crowd. We are just as fickle. We have just as many mixed motives. We are just as quick to discard God when we don't believe that there's anything more that he can offer us. You know, I think just like the crowd, we get this whole kingdom of God thing twisted up. We take these words that Jesus said, our theme verse for the series from Matthew 6.33, seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously and he will give you everything you need. We take those words, but we exercise our mixed motives and what we do is we actually try to live out this verse backwards instead. We change it in the way we live to seek everything you need above all else and try to live righteously so that God might want to do something nice for you, and maybe he'll give you some of the benefits of the kingdom. And so we seek what we want first, and we put our efforts into building our own kingdoms instead of seeking God's kingdom. We build a kingdom of comfort that says that, that peace will be found when there is no adversity in our lives. And meanwhile, God says, no, it's actually the adversity in your life that will bring you the transformation that will help you learn how to experience peace in all circumstances. And we try to build a kingdom of social justice, and we spend all of our efforts in trying to fix all of the injustices in our culture, but we use human-powered tools like politics, like good vibes, like Facebook movements. We use shame, and we even, Christ followers who are supposed to love people, we villainize the bad guys. Meanwhile, God says... You're missing my heart and you're missing my authority in this whole thing. When you build your own kingdom of social justice without me, it lacks love and you miss out on using the God-powered tools that will bring God-sized solutions. We also build a kingdom of importance. And this is one that maybe we don't want to admit. It's the kingdom where I'm in charge and where I get to have my own way. It's the place where I'm the big deal, where I'm the star of the show, and where everyone ought to bow and bend to my will because of how important I am. And meanwhile, God says, no matter how important you are, your kingdom is going to come to an end. And then after you die, what from your kingdom will remain? We need to get this verse right. We need to flip the script. We need to seek first the kingdom. And what that means is that we seek first the king. And so the question is, what does that look like? To seek the king is to build relationship with the king. Sometimes we make building a relationship with God to be this very confusing and complex thing. 
And really, it's just as simple as any human relationship, that what it takes to build a relationship, what it takes to build intimacy with the king is our time and our transparency and our surrender. Our time, our transparency, and our surrender. And so that looks like us daily yielding our will to the will of the king. It looks like us regularly meeting him through the guidebook for living that he provided us. It looks like frequently asking God's spirit to help us not just make the best choice for us, but to make the best choice for the kingdom. It means regularly examining our lives and our motives. It it means challenging ourselves to say, have I given God rule in every area of my life? Or are there these areas I'm keeping closed off to him that I'm resisting his loving rule? It means challenging the way that we approach God, being honest about whether we're approaching him transactionally or relationally. Jesus said the kingdom is here and now, and that you and that I, these measly little specks in the grand cosmos of the universe, we are actually invited to know the king We're invited to live under his loving rule, and doing so is something that can change our lives. It can change our thinking, can change our entire outlook. Because when we realize that we have a good and noble king who is taking care of our business, then we don't need to worry anymore. We don't need to get caught up in our present circumstances because the king's got it. Our propensity to to fall to temptation would decrease because we'd find security in the care and in the provision of our king. Maybe we'd even get a lot less upset about earthly things, like wins or losses of our favorite sports team, or which party wins the election. Maybe we wouldn't get so caught up in all of our family's drama. Today is Palm Sunday, and Jesus is riding into town. Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna to the king. In your life, in my life, the king has come. The king is here now. The question is, will you let him be your king? Many of you might recognize the name A.B. Simpson. And beyond being the founder of the Alliance, the greater family of churches of which Daybreak is a part, he was also a pretty prolific hymn writer. He wrote hundreds of hymns. And one of his hymns is entitled Himself. And while the melody isn't too exciting, it actually sounds a little dirgy, (laughs) the words, on the other hand, are this incredible picture of what it looks like for us when we get it, when we get that it's about seeking the king, when it's about entrusting ourselves to the king, when it's about building a relationship with the king, not just living for what the king has to offer us. And so I want to read it over you today as a prayer to close our message, and I hope that the words speak to you as much as they spoke to me this week. So would you bow your heads with me? Once it was the blessing, now it is the Lord. Once it was the feeling, now it is his word. Once his gifts I wanted, now the giver own. Once I sought for healing, now himself alone. Once it was painful trying, now it's perfect trust. Once a half salvation, now the uttermost. Once it was ceaseless holding, now he holds me fast. Once it was constant drifting, 
now my anchor's cast. Once it was busy planning, now it's trustful prayer. Once it was anxious caring, now he has the care. Once it was what I wanted, now what Jesus says. Once it was constant asking, now it's ceaseless praise. Once it was my working, his it hence shall be. Once I tried to use him, now he uses me. Once the power I wanted, now the mighty one. Once for self I labored, now for him alone. Once I hoped in Jesus, now I know he's mine. Once my lamps were dying, now they brightly shine. Once for death I waited, now his coming hail. And my hopes are anchored, safe within the veil. God, more than what you can offer us, we want you. We want to know you. We want to build relationship with you. We want to cling to you. We want to rely on you. We want to exercise faith and trust as we submit and surrender to you. God, we offer ourselves to you with the words of Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24 from the message version. God, investigate my life. Find out everything about me. Cross-examine and test me. Get a clear picture of what I'm about. See for yourself what I've done wrong, but then guide me on the road to eternal life. Jesus, our King, we love you. We ask you to lead us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as you pull your response card out of your program guide today, I want to bring us back to that question that we asked at the beginning of the message and to ask you to really start to process that. And that question is, what are you really seeking? The way that you're living, the way that you're spending your time, the way that you make decisions, the way that you approach God, what are you really seeking? And more specifically, what is it that you're seeking that isn't the king? Where are you resisting his loving rule in your life? I want to invite you to process that as we move into this moment of response, but I also want to make a few other invitations to you as well. If it would be helpful for you this morning to sit down, to share a little bit of what you're processing with someone, and then to have them pray for you this morning, our prayer partners would invite you to come back to the prayer room at any time through the rest of the service. That's their invitation. I believe God's invitation to us this week is just to seek Him, to seek the King, to enter into relationship with Him. And there's a few different ways that you can do that. First, you can commit to spending time with Him every day this week. Maybe you're in a busy season, maybe you've gotten distracted, maybe you kind of think, I don't know if I can be with God anymore. He might be disappointed in me. He might be ashamed of me because I haven't spent time with Him. I can tell you that's, that's not how He is. He's thrilled if you come back and spend time with Him. And so spend time with him in prayer. Spend time with him in his word. Spend time with him in worship. Maybe you even want to write on your response card today that you're committing to that so that you have some accountability about that. Another great way to seek him and to really understand the lengths that he went to for you is to come back out on Friday to our Good Friday experience. 
to seek him as you walk through the events that led up to Jesus' crucifixion. Again, to marvel at the lengths that he went to, to make it possible for us to be in relationship with him, to not have to relate to him by following rules, but to actually be able to relate with him. And another great way to seek him is to come back out next Sunday to one of our three Easter services ready to encounter the living king as we celebrate the resurrection, the the crown and jewel that gives us new life. In this moment, I want to invite you just to take some time to process what it is that the Lord is leading you to do as you seek him, as you seek his loving rule in your life. And then as you're ready, feel free to enter back into worship as our team leads you. Spend some time now processing your response.